going with you, Ingrid? You're just standing by the door like you're to shepherd them. Sweet. Oh, yeah, so I'm preaching now. I guess I'm going to have to slide my own pulpit with John away. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. Okay. So we're in Mark still, starting in chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. When the woman, knowing what had happened to her, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. When Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, John, and the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, while this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after putting them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was about 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, um, you know, one of the things I hate is is that, uh, you know, if we don't pick up the pace in Mark, we're going to be here a couple of years. Uh, and there's just a bunch of stuff, you know, you just can't, you just can't do everything. Like, there's this, you know the passage where, you just read over this, um, he shows up, he goes, hey, she's asleep. And they go, they, they laugh at him. And then it says, after he threw him out, <laughs> he went in and, t- I mean, just, that could be just a whole sermon right there, you know? But we're not going to be able to do that. Um, so there it is. That was my sermon on that. It's funny. Um, okay, so... When I was in college, my wife and I joined this thing called SAVAC, which was the, the college ambulance deal, right? And um, 
there's a lot that can be said about that. It's essentially carting drunk people if you've ever been on a university ambulance squad. But it, it, we had to go through the EMT class, and so we both became EMTs. And one of the things that they teach you in that is how to, how to rate or how to rank um, symptoms in terms of how acute they are and how quick they need care. And I'm told also this is true of, um, of RN testing. When you test to be a nurse, uh, nearly half the test, I'm told, is ranking questions. Here's the symptoms, here's the categories, how acute is this? Is this more important than this? Do you need a physician on that or what? How, how important is it? And here, here's the thing. Most of us could do the triage work for this passage just straight up out of our common sense, right? Straight up out of your common sense. You tell me, who needs care more acutely? Right? A grown woman who's had a condition for 12 years and is still alive. A little girl whose dad, who's the most important guy in his town, throws himself at the feet of this wandering, smelly teacher, pleading with him to come and lay his hands on his daughter because she's going to die that imminently. Okay? You're the doctor. Who needs care right away and who can wait? Thanks, Dave. Very good. The girl. <laughs> so, I mean, think about this. It, it, it's so easy to just kind of read over this. Like, the girl was, like, Jesus was too far away. The girl was already going to die. And so, you know, whatever. It's not that, no, that's not what Mark is trying to do in the story. What Mark is trying to tell us in the story is that this is unbelievable, okay? You could retell it something like this. There's a major car accident, right? You, you, they extricate this little girl out of this car. Her, her pulse is thready. She's clearly bleeding internally. They get her in the ambulance. They're screaming down to the hospital. Sirens blaring, lights flashing, and the driver sees some woman at a corner kind of holding her back like her back really hurts. And he stops the ambulance, pulls over, shuts off the siren, gets out, and starts talking to her about treatment options. I mean, you can imagine, if you, if you were watching this, you'd be like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, can you imagine being Jairus? You come up, you throw yourself at the feet of this guy. You're the most important person in your city, right? He, he comes with you. You're already not making enough progress because of this crowd that's just everywhere, right? You're trying to get them through to this thing. And all of a sudden, this, this Jesus guy goes, whoa, whoa, who touched me? And then his own disciples are saying, Jesus, everybody's touching you. Like, everybody's touching you. How can you, I mean, no, 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 no. Somebody touched me, touched me. Like, I felt power go out for me. So then this woman comes forward, and Jared's just like, dude, what? So what? Who cares? Right? And then it turns out she's already healed. He's like, she's already healed. What? She's better. Jesus, dying daughter, better woman. What's, and he, and he gets into a conversation with her. Like Mark actually says there, it says, he, she told him the whole truth. Okay? Now, middle-aged women can talk a lot. And... <laughs> People who have had fantastic experiences can talk a lot. You put them both together. I mean, how long did this telling the whole truth go on for? I mean, nobody knows. But what we, we found out, how much did we find out? She was apparently fairly thorough. We found out that she'd had the condition for 12 years. I mean, Pete, Mark has got to have gotten this information from somewhere, right? He's getting it from Peter. Where did Peter get it? He heard her tell it, right? She, he, she had the condition for 12 years. She'd had multiple doctors. She'd suffered a lot under their care. Like, 
And you can just imagine, you're going, then I went, you know, then I went to Dr. Schmelzer, and oh, was he awful, you know, and then we went to, and you're like, oh my gosh, and Jairus is like, are you kidding me? Are you, seriously? And Jesus is just waiting. He's like, that's awful. I can't believe that. Really? You know, and she finally gets in, she says, so I just thought if I just came up and I touched your cloak that I'd be healed, and, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, well, you were. You know, your faith is, daughter, go in peace, you know? And, and this is, ha- and meanwhile, these people show up and they go, well, well, Jarius, she may be his daughter, but your daughter is dead. I mean, the moral of the story is, if we get inside Jarius's head, what's he thinking, right? Hold on, I have a slide for this. I always remember when I want to actually finally want those slides, I have one of these. Is this working? It's not working. Okay, so, you know, he's thinking, I don't believe this, right? That's, that's the major, would be the major sentence in my head if I was this little girl's father. I don't believe this. Are you serious? And what does Jesus turn to him and say? He turns to him and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe, right? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that Mark puts this particular quotation front and center at this moment in the story because this is the moral of the story, right? This, that, that's the thing Jesus is conveying. He's conveying <clears throat> this axiom. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Now, there's an interesting thing, <clears throat> corollary here that we won't talk about very long, but could be a whole sermon in and of itself, or series, I guess. And that is, Jesus' presumption is that the thing standing in the way of faith most of the time isn't our reason. It's our fear. We wax really eloquent about the fact that the reason why we don't obey Jesus really in difficult situations is because we have doubts in our reason and blah, blah, blah. Listen, the reason why Luther said reason is a whore is because our reason will accompany our reactions. So that we, will, we can convince ourselves absolutely that we have used nothing but the sheer objective faculties of our reason. But our reason has just thrown itself to work in the service of our most visceral reactive fears. And if, if, you, if you learn very much about Christianity, you'll realize this when you talk to people who think they have fantastic reasons as to why they either gave up the faith or don't believe. Usually they're terrible reasons based on things that aren't anywhere near facts that you could find out weren't facts if you looked at even at biased articles on Wikipedia. But they just, they, they don't read, because we are, we get 100% convinced that, oh my gosh, I just have fantastic reasons. And what Jesus is saying is most of the time, now not all the time, but most of the time, it's our, it's our fear that took us. It's that we're terrified of being unhappy, of losing something, of being put in an impossible situation, of Jesus asking something of us that we're, not, we're just frankly unwilling to give. And he brings up, and I'll come back to this at the, the end, the two things that we're most terrified of, that is, the loss of our health or something happening to one of our children. You just go off if you want to in a room and try to figure out two bigger idols or two bigger utilitarian goods that we value as goods, that if they were endangered by some thing, they would create enough fear in us that we'd be like, you know what, I don't know what Jesus is doing, but these delays of him answering my prayers are inexcusable, inexplicable, and completely unreasonable. 
Essentially, that's the issue Jesus is dealing with, the problem of God's delays that from our perspective are unreasonable, inexcusable, and inexplicable. Because here's the, the reality is, is that if you're either in a relationship with God or considering getting into a relationship with God, you're going to have this experience. You are going to have the experience where something is happening, you plead for his help, and it doesn't seem to come. You're going to have it about weekly. Some of them are going to go on for years. Some of them are still going to be going on when you take your last gasp. That's reality. And Jesus offers us this episode through Mark so that we would understand what on earth we're supposed to do with it, right? And so here's, here's what I would say. We will be able to not allow fear to take us and to believe to the extent to which our belief in Jesus is stronger than the terror created by the thing we stand to lose. It's simple, it's simple motivational math, really. I mean, the engineers would be like, Nick, you're waxing real eloquent on a fairly, fairly basic categorical math. You've got motivation, how much Jesus is able to create in you motivationally, and the other thing you want and you're terrified about, either you want to take it to yourself or you don't want to lose it, and whichever one's greater wins. It's simple human nature. So I think what we need to do, instead of me talking again and again about just believing, just believe, just believe, well, here's what we got to do. We need to look into this passage and see how our vision of Jesus is meant to be expanded so that when Jesus implicitly says to each of us, don't be afraid, just believe, our image of Jesus is sufficiently large that we could go, that Jesus I can believe in. Because every single one of us has a that Jesus in our heads that's not entirely the exact real Jesus, okay? None of us are ever really going to get there, right? And so all of us have a subset of the real Jesus based on what we've learned, what God's worked out in our lives, what we've taken in, how we've believed, what we've read in the Bible, all that kind of stuff. We have this amalgamation of Jesus in our heads, this construct, which for some of us is smaller, some of us is larger, some of us is totally wrong, some of us— and so here's the thing. If, you, if we want to make these gut checks, we need to make that construct of Jesus as close to the real Jesus as possible, as close in glory and greatness and graciousness and love and hope and as the actual Jesus that's there. And Jesus gives us some options, some help in this parable, right? So let's do three things real fast. First is the grace of Jesus. Now, this is interesting because, to me, because there are people who would say— Here's the reason I'm afraid. I don't think Jesus is going to take any notice of me. Right? I just, I honestly, I think I'm either wicked enough or not important enough for Jesus to take any notice of me. And here's why I think that that's interesting. Because most of us are too arrogant for that. Most of us think that that's, that's, that's that, that poor old beat up single mom over there in the back. You know, she feels that way. And oh, I have sympathy for her. Here's the thing. Of all of the fears, that's the most reasonable one. That's the thing we don't understand. It is the beat-up, tired person who's been waking up in the middle of the night enough times and that just really feels like their life has gone off track enough, they've screwed up enough, enough things have happened to them that they just don't think God will take any notice of them because they're just not good enough or important enough. That's the most reasonable objection to Jesus not doing anything for you or me. 
And we think, oh, you know, people who are all emotional, they think things like that, like Jesus doesn't really care about them. That's the only, that's the only objection to Jesus helping us that makes any sense. Right? The Bible actually says there's this huge difference between God's glory and us. I mean, the, the Psalms say, God, what on earth is a human being that you would even pay any attention to us? This doesn't make any sense. Right? It is scripture that says we are desperately wicked. We are just constantly self-justifying ourselves and thinking of ourselves as more important than we should and more central than we should, more important than our friends than we should. I mean, this is the one that actually makes sense. But it's the one that we are probably least likely to think. But here's what this, this passage says very, very clearly. Is it, it demonstrates the graciousness of Jesus. He doesn't give a rip about your position or your merit or how important you are. Just doesn't care at all. He just doesn't care. And so, I mean, this is a classic example of Jesus doing that. Um, You've got the most important guy in a town, right, who comes to Jesus and he believes well. Okay? It's not just that he's important. He's actually more faithful than the woman. His faith is better than her faith. She's, a pa- she's essentially a pagan. She's thinking in categories of magic. If he, there's power in this man, if I touch him, that power will come into me. I'll be healed, right? He's, she's thinking in shamanistic categories, right? This guy, he's the leader of the synagogue. He comes, he throws himself before Jesus. He pleads with him to help him. It's, it's a direct approach. Jesus, neither one matters. Which should be comforting to us. Right? He stops, and, he give, and it's not that he doesn't care about the rich guy. I mean, there's sort of this hip thing like, well, Jesus cares about the poor people. He doesn't care about the rich. No, he cares about both people. It's just, he doesn't do what we do. He doesn't favor the rich people. The good news for the poor is, they get treated just like everybody else. Right? And so the rich ought to learn, we ought to treat the poor just like everybody else. And so you get this really clear event where Jesus just treats everyone the same. Your merit doesn't matter, and how well you believe doesn't even really matter that much, so long as you do. Right? Dick Lucas has this quote about what happens in this parable. He's a, he's, he's a British pastor. He says, Jesus takes the time to comfort and teach an unclean woman with a chronic problem causing a male church leader with an urgent need to wait. Exactly what happens in this parable. And um, one of the things that I like about this is that if you pay attention to the use of the word daughter in the parable, it's really helpful because the, the, the synagogue ruler, Jairus, comes and he says, please come heal my, do- my daughter, Right? And what does Jesus choose to call this woman? Now, now you go and you search the Gospels for the other places where Jesus calls grown women daughter, because you're not going to find them. I think Mark intentionally signals here that what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm not going to overlook my daughter's spiritual and physical need to go take care of yours, Jairus. We're going to get to her, but, I'm, but she's my daughter too, this woman who has no money, who's an outcast, who suffered under, I mean, just who knows what had been done to that woman, you know what I mean? 
So that's the grace of Jesus. The second thing is the wisdom of Jesus. And that is that um, Jesus is really wise here, okay? If you're in this, in this period, if you're one of the people in here, you're Jairus, and you're thinking in utilitarian categories, which is how we Americans think, okay? One of the reasons why these parables, or these, not, this isn't a parable, these episodes don't make any sense to us is because we tend to think that Jesus' job, if he's a good cosmos ruler, must be to create the most amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain for the most amount of people for the most amount of time. Those are the categories we think in. And so Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus' actions in this parable are non-optimal, when it comes to utilitarianism. Well, let me just say something to you about this, okay? Um, Jeremy Bentham, he was a utilitarian. John Stuart Mill, he was utilitarianism. He was utilitarian. Jesus, not so much. No evidence in the Bible that those are Jesus's priorities or God's priorities, right? You, you would think that if Jesus was just trying to make people happy, just trying to meet needs, he would have parted the crowd like Moses in the Red Sea, rushed over to Jairus' house, healed the little girl, gone back, had a two o'clock appointment with the woman, right? After he healed a bunch more people, probably, right? Because you get down the list once you've been healed. But Jesus' apparent greatest interest is to turn an essentially pagan woman who was healed by his power into a believer. It's, it's his interest to capitalize spiritually in terms of these people finding out what they are in the cosmos and in the relatedness to God Almighty. That is the priority in all these situations. In fact, he uses the woman's situation to exacerbate Jairus's to maximize the spiritual impact on Jairus. Even while he's putting off Jairus, he's loving him. Because what Jairus is going to get to see is a little girl raised from the dead. That's what he's going to end up seeing while he's getting put off. Inexplicably, inexcusably by Jesus. If you have a utilitarian mentality, right? That's what's happening. And in both cases, Jesus forces the person who he's talking to, to put on the altar the thing they love the most. Now think about this. The woman comes up and touches Jesus and she gets instantly healed, okay? The crowd is thick enough and pushing on Jesus enough that the disciples tell Jesus he's never gonna find who did it, right? They say that explicitly. So why does Jesus demand that the woman come forward? What was she terrified of? Was it that Jesus just spoke sternly? Is that what terrified her? Because that's, that's what it says. It says she came, she threw herself on the ground, and she was terrified. What was she terrified of? Here's what she was terrified of. She was terrified that the wandering shaman that she had touched could take away the power that she'd taken from just as easily as she could take it from him. If he was mad about it, and you couldn't tell by the way he said it, right? He said, who touched me? Fairly sternly. He gets gracious after she comes, right? But he turns around and says, who touched me? Think about this. You're a woman. You've been bleeding for 12 years. 
You used to be a nice little middle class lady. You've become impoverished and scarred. You've gone through unspeakable hack procedures from who knows how many doctors. And instead of getting better, you've grown worse. You're chronically ill and worse than you've ever been. And you're broke. And you just got healed. And now you can either slip away in the crowd or you can put all your chips on the table and go and talk to the person who healed you. Think about that. What would you have done? <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. So when, when Jesus says, woman, your faith has healed you, we usually just think in terms of, well, the faith to come up and touch the garment. Well, yeah, it was that. They, that had to happen for anything to happen, right? But there's more, there was even more faith than that, wasn't there? Who among us is willing to risk our health? To face that fear and come to Jesus, right? And Jairus, same gig, right? I mean, he could have just walked. I mean, the people came up to him and said, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Let's go. I mean, and think about this. You're the most important person in the city. There's people crawling all over the place, right? People come up to you and say, listen, your daughter's dead. Okay, see, now, see, this is just taking a turn now because everybody knows Jesus is a healer, right? By this point in Mark's gospel, everybody knows that. Now, but if you believe Jesus can raise your daughter from the dead, what does that do to you? Now you're one of those fundamentalists, right? You're, you're kooky. Like, he's, he's, he's standing in front of these people and they're like, dude, your daughter's dead. Like, let's go home. And Jesus is like, no, don't be afraid, just believe. And these people are looking at you like, dude, really? Seriously? You, you seriously believe that? I mean, they get to Jerry's house and they all laugh at him, right? Jesus throws him out. <laughs> and then he goes in and heals the girl, right? See, in both cases, you see the wisdom of Jesus. You see how he plays this out? It's totally different than how we'd play it out, right? Totally different. It's completely inexplicable. You're like, if you look at it from Jairus' perspective, you look at it from the disciples' perspective, you look at it from the, the people who've come to mourn's perspective, just about anybody who's in the story, you look at it from their perspective, and everything Jesus does seems nuts. But yet, you watch it play out as the reader, and you go, yeah, he just had that all the whole time, didn't he? Right? So then why can't we believe that when we lose our jobs? Or when our kid isn't doing well, or when our health is failing, or when anything happens to us, when any temptation falls onto us, it's just common to humanity. For some reason, we flip out. And we slip away in the crowd, or we just go home with our buddies because we cannot possibly believe that Jesus actually has some wise plan for his put-offs and delays to our requests. Our vision of Jesus is way too small to motivate us beyond our fear, and so our fear takes us. And lastly, it's the power of Jesus. Um, so they show up at Jairus' house, and Jesus throws everybody out, and he, he only brings in a couple of people. And he comes over to this little girl, right? And she's dead. And, um, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't go, all right, everybody, stand back. 
This is death, but I can handle it. You ready? Right? Like there's no theatrics at all, right? He walks up to the girl and he says that Aramaic phrase, Talitha, kum, right? Now, here's, here's, a, here's an interpretive question for you. Why put in the Aramaic if you're Mark? Right? Why put in the Aramaic? Why not just say, and Jesus said, little girl, get up. There's, there's, I think there's five times in Mark's gospel where he puts in the Aramaic that Jesus says. Right? Well, um, one commentator, William Lane, says this about that. He said, um, Talitha is, is a word for little girl, but in Greek as well as in other languages, there's, there are forms of a word that are the diminutive. That is, that are the... So you, you'd call, you might call your little girl sweetie, right? So the, in, in Aramaic, there's, there's girl, and then there's the word for like little sweetie, like what a dad would call his daughter, right? And then kum is a non-declinable word, meaning it's not a verb that you can say in 50 different ways. It's a, it's a single saying. And so talitha kum is, is a sort of, it's a, it's a sweet way to tell a little girl to wake up is what it is. It's what a dad would say if he came up and sat next to his daughter when the light was coming in the window with the first light of morning and they're getting ready to go to church and he sits down in her bed and he says, sweetie, wake up. That's what it is. And if you just translate it with igero in Greek, it doesn't, it doesn't carry it. Right? It doesn't carry the, the, the sweetness. I mean, I think about this. Jesus walks up to a dead girl, sits down and says, sweetie, time to wake up. It's time to wake up, sweetheart. Think about this. I mean, Jesus is essentially saying, listen, if you're with me, um, you know, death is going to be nothing more than a good night's sleep for you until I wake you up. That's power right there. That's power. And listen, at the end of the day, all of our hopes in Jesus hang on his power. Hangs on his graciousness, hangs on his love, hangs on a lot of other things. But listen, make no mistake, it hangs on his power. And nothing's more powerful than the guy who walks up to somebody dead, who's a little girl who's dead, and says, sweetie, wake up. Right? And so um, I listened to a, a, a talk by Tim Keller on this, and he, he basically outlines this, something similar. And he gets to the end, and, he, and here's his question. He goes, why would you want to rush somebody like this? It's immensely gracious, incredibly wise, inexplicably powerful, knows exactly what he's doing, brings all things to a beautiful end, though he puts everybody off and makes everybody angry. Why, why do you want to rush somebody like that? Why don't you just not be afraid and believe. There, um, when Lex and I were in Florida, we, uh, this, is the, this is the end. Um, when Lex and I were in Florida, we um, met this family called the Scudingas, and um, their, boy was a, their older boy was the same age as, as uh, Abigail, our, our older daughter. And um, their second daughter was a girl named Cassidy. And uh, she, she was one of those kids. You know how you like kids that just cry all the time when they're first born? 
So th- she was one of these kids, just cried all, I mean, six weeks straight. And kind of too much for colic, right? And so they, they took her to the, to the doctor, and they did the end of the MRIs and, and the whole gig. And they saw that in one of her kitties, she had a number of tumors that she was apparently born with. And so they, um, I mean, they just did the whole scale stuff. I mean, um, they, and within the, I mean, they, they, about a year later, they removed a kidney. They did um, bone marrow harvesting. She took, she did chemo. Okay, this is a girl, this girl's girl one. Right? This is her first three years of life. Um, chemo, radiation, um, I mean, you name it, they did it. Driving five hours one way to Birmingham from Panama City. And, um, <clears throat> and there was about a year of it where she looked pretty healthy. Her eyes got all messed up by the treatments. She had to have glasses. She was bald for most of it. Um, and then she died just a, li- just a touch after her fourth birthday. I said, three horrible years, and then she dies. Um, and the parents are Christians, and they um, and they mourned like you would expect, and they went on, and they had another child, and they loved the two kids they've got, and they our parents who've lost a child. Now, this is why I'm telling you this. Um, one of the things I think that's incredibly wise about Jesus' intentional intention that this episode be included is because I think it's really wise that it is health and children that are the, the idols that are attacked in this. Nothing, no one is more ferociously unbelieving and angry at God than a woman who's lost a child. No one feels more self-justified in their hatred of God, if he should exist, than parents who've lost a child. It's just a fact. And they will look an earnest pastor dead in the face and get as angry as spitting mad for even the suggestion that they might not be processing this the best way possible. And I think it's wise for Jesus to stare your and my health our very bodies. Think about this. Remember the book of Job? Remember what Satan said? I don't care how righteous he is. Skin for skin. Skin for skin. You let me take his flesh and he will curse you. I don't care how righteous the man is. Everybody will trade their righteousness for their life. Right? You know why Jesus said that to God's face? Because it almost always is true. It's almost always true. We'll, we'll, we'll trade in every pretense of faith if, if we could just have our life. Just let me live. So let me be healthy. Don't make me suffer with pain for 12 years and grow worse. Just don't anything but that. Or losing a child. And those of us who are parents, I mean like, I used to be a tough guy, generally speaking. Not, now I cry at the last scene of Mulan, okay? I mean like, it's ridiculous what children do to you, Right? Like, my, my wife, like, sets the timer in 10-minute intervals when our family watches Anne of Green Gables because I cry every 10 minutes. <laughs> right? I mean, and I—is and I, I, it intentional? It was a daughter. Right? You think of the culture like, you know, it w- wouldn't have the story have played better if it was his only son? Maybe, but I don't know if you've had daughters. I don't know. Daddy would do anything for his daughter. Anything. Remember in Job? He killed all them too. 
Satan killed all of you. I'll take his kids, he'll curse you, right? I think it's wise because, you see, we've got, we've got to get to the point where, and see, okay, listen, listen. You need, you need to know this for the next 10 years, okay? You need to know this is why I preach like this, okay? This, this is why I don't preach lovey-dovey little sermons, okay? Because I'm trying to prepare you for this day, okay? This day is coming, in little intervals, you might have, if, if it's a scale of one to ten, you might little have twos and threes and fours and ones and fives. But the ten is coming, and most of us don't make it on the fours, okay? And so this, this is why I preach this way. I'm trying to help prepare you. I'm trying to help us all get ready to have a vision of Jesus large enough that whatever happens— our vision of Jesus is sufficiently motivating so that fear does not take us. And happy little stories will never do that for you. It will never do that for us. All that little lovey-dovey motivation will vanish when they say that your daughter has a very fast-moving form of leukemia and is going to die in less than 12 months. You have got to have a vision of Jesus sufficient that when your three-year-old, after th three horrible years of trying to fight for her life, she dies, that you can hold your wife and hold your husband and cry and look each other in the eye and say, sweetheart, God, I loved her. God, I loved her. But someday the Savior is going to say, to her and to you and me, Talitha, kum. Father, um, we pray that from this story, from this episode of Jesus' wisdom and his power and his grace, that you would create in our hearts a vision of you sufficient enough to prepare us for these days. Whether it's whatever trial we're going to come through today, as, as small as losing the Rose Bowl or possibly losing to the Bears, the ones of life, or the big things. When we get sick, when our health goes, when our, ch when our children are lost, when our kids decide they're going to smoke meth for a living. Father, help us have a vision of you sufficient for those moments too. So that when you say, do not fear, believe, we can.